<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. However you find us, podcast, podcast platforms, great radio stations around this country. CBSN, thank you for joining us. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for sticking with the vibe of this program. I don't want to waste any time. I want to introduce our special guest, Bill Bratton. He has been police commissioner in Boston, New York, and Los Angeles. He is one of the deepest thinkers and the biggest, most successful reformers in what was, in the 90s, a reform era in American policing. When people think about the topic of law, justice, police reform, Bill Bratton is always a part of that conversation. Bill, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Major. Bill's also written a new book. He's written several books, but the book has just come out. It's called The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. If you want to know a lot of the sometimes grittier, sometimes behind-the-scenes details about Boston, L.A., New York in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's a great read. Uh, but I want to talk to you right now, Bill, about topical things in the moment. Uh, you sat down or did a Zoom with uh, Maureen Dowd, a friend and colleague of ours here at the show. And uh, let's just start with some of the things that showed up in her column this Sunday. Um, you write in the book that uh, Rudy Giuliani has become a caricature of himself. You worked for Mayor Giuliani in the 90s arm-in-arm, arm, really, to resurrect New York and turn it around. What do you see in Rudy Giuliani now that so surprises you, having worked with him back then? Well, the Rudy that was evident during the recent uh, shenanigans around the election bears uh, no resemblance whatsoever to the uh, Rudy Giuliani that I knew uh, and worked with and worked for and battled with on occasion in the 1990s. And indeed, uh, even through the period of time when he was running for president briefly, that uh, I don't know what the hell happened to him over the last several years, but it's not the same Rudy. Do you think with respect to the election, he has lost respect for the law? Uh, I think that's actually a very good uh, uh, comment that I could support that uh, so much of what he attempted in the uh, uh, issue around Hunter Biden in the sense of all that was going on over in Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, his defense of the uh, now significantly refuted arguments that the uh, election was rigged, that uh, it makes no sense for a person that was so focused on the law, so good at the law, and uh, was also so good at political leadership as evidenced by his leadership of New York during the 90s, the crime epidemic, but maybe more significantly after 9-11, that, uh, where he became uh, the nation's mayor, if you will, America's mayor. 
Right. So what do you think happened? I think that uh, he was somebody that, and I can appreciate this, that has always uh, uh, sought the spotlight as a way of advancing his uh, both personal and professional goals. Similarly, myself, that uh, I'm always uh, uh, made the butt of a joke by John Miller, our colleague John Miller, that I've never met a camera that I didn't like. Uh, for my purposes, it is the idea of using that spotlight and camera to advance things I deeply believe in, in terms of, and that's what the book is all about. But in the case of Rudy recently, I think it was the idea that uh, he was no longer in the spotlight. And by attaching himself to the uh, Trump bandwagon, uh, maybe even the clown car might be more appropriate uh, uh, description, uh, he, he, he lost it. He really did. And the, the cast of characters he surrounded himself with these various news conferences and hearings, uh, he did not acquit himself. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to see it uh, 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 basically go in that direction, that no matter whether you like him or not, uh, he really helped to save New York in the 1990s, and he really got the city uh, uh, focused after 9-11, uh, set the stage for Bloomberg and my predecessor, Ray Kelly, to come in and, and deal with that horrific tragedy. Right. And you, those of us who remember that era, he was an instrument of law and order. He was an instrument of creating a livable New York City, the most important city in this country. And now he will be remembered, I think, at least in part for saying, let's have trial by combat yeah, Somebody who basically on January tried- 6th. I mean, how does ego explain that? That's anti-constitutionalism I, I, I don't first have an and foremost. He effectively was part of the cabal that effectively tried to destroy our democracy, something that he took an oath as the U.S. attorney and certainly then as U.S. Uh, as mayor of New York to defend that constitution. And there he was leading the charge effectively on uh, January 6th. But for the actions of the Capitol Police, our democracy would have ended on that day. And uh, he would have been one of the principal uh, instigators of that cabal. Uh, Maureen Dowd notes that in her column that you somewhat dryly observed to her that the pro-police Trump administration and the pro-police Trump presidency has to be cast in a different light, seeing what happened on January 6th, and now subsequent efforts to act like it didn't even happen. That's correct. That uh, I'm infuriated. The idea that uh, uh, those in law enforcement would continue to support uh, uh former President Trump and the cast of characters that currently occupy many seats in Congress that uh, not only uh, uh, sought to destroy democracy on January 6th, but have continued that effort subsequent to January 6th by tying themselves to the uh, what we clearly understand, the lies about the uh, 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 authenticity of the election and uh, the idea of uh, wanting to destroy our democracy to defend an individual, one man, uh, just amazes me and it, it, it disgusts me and saddens me at the same time. And last week we saw that play out in actual legislative terms. Senate Republicans exactly. blocked an effort to create a bipartisan commission to look into what happened on the 6th. Your reaction? Once again, not unexpected, but once again, disappointment that the world's greatest deliberative body has now locked itself in a closet from which it does not intend to emerge to any longer deliberate anything. Uh, that the idea that you would not want to understand what were the events leading up to probably the most uh, significant event in the modern history of our country and understand how did this come to be? Uh, the idea of the political cowardice, stick your head in the sand, 
uh, as somebody who loves this company, country, who for 50 years, I think, has advocated for the democracy we're privileged to share, they just don't get it. I just don't get this blind loyalty to, in this case, Mr. Trump, who really sought to, for his own personal purposes, destroy the democracy that all sworn to uphold. And a couple themes are still emerging, Bill Bratton. One that, hey, this wasn't such a big deal. If you didn't know it was January 6th, you would think these people were tourists. That's almost a complete verbatim quote from one Republican member of the House of Representatives. No, well, that's, that's, I was in the Capitol for 15 years as a working reporter. I know what tourists look like. Those were not tourists. I've seen that uh, film clip a number of times. Every time I feel like giving them a dope slap, that uh, the stupidity, the the callousness of it. Uh, explain that to the Capitol Police who were there protecting that moron on that day, that uh, uh, how, how those uh, congressmen and senators can walk by those Capitol Police every day after slapping them down. And now they're, they're stuck on the budget to try and improve the security at the Capitol and improve the security of those Capitol Police who are underfunded, understaffed, undersupported, and poorly led, and led poorly led because of the poor leadership in the Congress. What does it tell you, Bill, about the state of our country where now the United States Capitol is regarded in ways it never has been before as a legitimate target for domestic extremists or terrorists? That's frightening. It's the idea that uh, uh, the events of January 6th exposed this underbelly that had been there for a while. Uh, And one of the good things coming out of January 6th, it really exposed it. It really brought to the national consciousness this idea that there are these elements in our society, as evidenced by the thousands that stormed the Capitol, who for a variety of reasons uh, want to effectively take down this democracy and replace it with something else. It's very scary. Uh, We came very close on that day. Uh, Good news is we have been forewarned. Good news is that reasonable people in government, and there are still the majority, are reasonable, who want to save our democracy, I'm still going to fight to preserve it. That is the voice of Bill Bratton, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Bill Bratton is our special guest. Now, in the intro, I said he has been involved in police reform for the better part of his career. He is always someone people look to. There might be some in the audience say, wait a minute, he was in New York, Boston, L.A. How much, how reformed were those places? There's still issues between some communities of color in this country and the police. What does Bill Bratton know about this? Well, I'll let Bill speak for himself. In those three cities, Bill, where would you say you were the most successful reformer, and how did you and do you, in retrospect, define police reform? I think in all three cities, and indeed in American policing, this is what I write about in The Profession. The Profession is a book of 50 years of police history, 1970 
on up right through the uh, George Floyd event that so uh, changed the landscape of America uh, within the last year. And it's through my eyes and experiences in those three cities, as well as the many others that I, I, I dealt with during my career, but it's also through the experiences of many of the people who I met in those cities. And it is a, from my perspective, a story of not only the arc of policing that has been moving steadily along a reform path, it explains where we were in 1970 when I arrived, where we are now and where I think we can go and all the pluses and minuses. And in the book, I speak to each of those cities in very specific terms, in terms of what happened in each one that takes us farther along that arc of reform. We are interestingly enough in a good place at this time, despite all the controversy, because we are in the spotlight, we are center stage. And as the government gets ready to spend trillions of dollars on a multitude of issues that let's hope they put some of that money into the reforms that are going to be necessary to get policing farther down the path of reform, understanding we never reach a final destination of policing. We never reach it in medicine. We never reach it in science because the world is always changing around us. And what I talk about in the book is the idea also of how the 21st century changed the previous 200 years of police reform and totally expanded all the issues that cops now have to deal with. So you write in the book that uh, the police departments you came into in the 70s, 80s, and 90s had problems with race. They had institutional inertia. They did things the way they always did. You write about that in Boston. You certainly write about the history in L.A. of being racist, bigoted cops who basically wanted to keep blacks in L.A. down and just keep them out of the way of the white people. That's a rough retranslation of what I read in the book. And then New York has an evolving relationship with the African-American community, something that you say Mayor Giuliani didn't work very hard at, but you tried to. What would you say in those three situations in these decades has most significantly changed and what needs to change yet in those relationships? In response to that question, what needs to be understood is the police are not independent entities. We work for politicians. I've worked for mayors, I've worked for governors, and effectively we enforce the laws that those politicians pass. Oftentimes we're criticized for how we enforce them. Oftentimes we're increasingly in the 21st century, we're increasingly criticized for enforcing them, even though they're on the books and even though the public in general wants them enforced. So let's first make it very clear that police are not independent entities that, at least my experience in uh, three of the largest cities in America, working for some pretty tough mayors that uh, who set the political agenda. You cover Washington, D.C. at the national level. The political agenda is set by Congress, uh, unfortunately, and uh, by the president of the United States. And if they can ever get together on something, then it becomes law. But in terms of those three cities, all of them had uh, issues around the issue of race. And we need to understand that the history of race in this country is entwined at every period of time with police. Going back to, uh, we talk about the original sin of slavery. Uh, early on in many states, the uh, first constables, the first sheriffs spent a lot of their time chasing down slaves. And after Dred Scott in Northern cities, Northern police forces, uh, what passed for police forces in those days, were required to chase down slaves and return them to the South. So, so much of our history has been involved around this issue. But to resolve racial issues in the United States is going to take 
the essential entity, I firmly believe this after 50 years in the business, is going to require the police. So those that would turn their back on us, those who would seek to reduce our role uh, in many respects, those who would continue to attack us, they're getting it all along because we need to effectively work together and not work apart. So when you hear the slogan, and I know it is subject to all sorts of definitional characteristics depending on who's saying it and for what purpose, when you hear defund the police, what do you hear and what do you think cops hear? It is one of the stupidest slogans I've ever experienced in my 50 years, but it had great, uh, 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 it was a great hashtag. And early on, politicians in America, many others, rushed to embrace it. And uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio, in a recent interview that was in the Washington Post, defund, his response to the defund movement was to, was to the environment of the moment. Just think of that. His response was to the environment of the moment. I'm going to get on the bandwagon. Defund, that sounds great. Black Lives Matter is embracing it. Everybody's embracing it. And what have we now found less than a year later? One, everybody's running like hell away from it, from the president on down, including de Blasio. And in most cities that tried to implement the defund as a knee-jerk reaction to the events of the moment, what happened? Minneapolis lost 200 of its 800 offices and is experiencing some of the highest crime rates in its history. And now is asking the state to send in reinforcements and is putting money back into its budget. New York City, de Blasio reduced the size of the New York City police force by 2,000 offices cut out most of the overtime. Anybody that's been in New York, particularly Manhattan recently or on the subways has seen the result of that cutback in that city. City after city in America are experiencing crime rates they have not seen since the 1990s. And what is all that a direct result of? I believe the rush to basically embrace what was a political hashtag, but political expediency. Fortunately, uh, we're uh, basically seeing that pendulum go back the other way again. When you hear uh, some experts in this realm have said, okay, we don't mean defund the police, but sometimes what we mean is reorienting situations in which cops are maybe not the best person to get involved, whether it's a mental illness thing or a domestic violence thing with a mental illness component. Is that true? Do you agree with that? Basically, a lot of them are now trying to cover their butt because they understand, understand that uh, defund the police doesn't work. No, there's no denying that some of the refocus of the funds from police was to take certain responsibilities away from the police, such as dealing with the homeless, such as dealing with the mentally ill, such as dealing with those under the influence of narcotics. Great. I'm supportive of that. Every police chief in America would support that. It's going to cost you a fortune. and It's going to take years to set up those bureaucracies. And why are we the police doing it in the first place? goes right back to my beginning in 1970. And I write about this throughout the book, 1970, George Kelling writes eloquently, 1970s, match it up against 2020, 1970, 2020. Three things happened back in the 70s that we're still dealing with in the police of America today that get us in so much trouble. We deinstitutionalized. We let out hundreds of thousands of people into the streets, mental institutions, and really didn't have any safety nets for them. Who ended up having to deal with them for the next 50 years? The police. We decriminalize. One of the things we're doing right now that with DAs in New York don't want to prosecute for minor offenses. So as those people, the homeless, the emotionally disturbed, began to expand their activities on the street, 
Back then, we had tools to work with in terms of trying to deal with them. But in any event, we still decriminalized. A lot of the laws we had back then were taken away. Now in 2020, we're taking even more of the tools away from the police. The third issue was we depoliced. New York City laid off 5,000 police officers in the midst of all of this chaos and spent the next 20 years trying to recover from it. It wasn't until the 1990s. What are we doing right now with defund the police? We're depolicing. New York City's down several thousand officers. Minneapolis down 25% of its force. Los Angeles basically wanted to reduce their force by almost a thousand. Now they're hiring back 250. So isn't it amazing, uh, uh, Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again? I've been around long enough that the 50 years that most people don't understand, we're repeating the 1970s all over again. That's the voice of Bill Bratton. When we come back for segment three, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about interesting unintended consequences of 911 and something called broken windows theory with Bill Bratton. Major Garrett, this is The Takeout. Stay tuned for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Bill Bratton is our special guest. Uh, he has been commissioner of the Boston Police Department, Los Angeles Police Department, and New York Police Department, not once but twice. Um, so he writes in his book, The Profession, something I didn't understand. And I was a police reporter, Bill, for four solid years. Did a little bit of it in Houston, the third newspaper city I worked in, Amarillo, Las Vegas, Houston, before I got to Washington. Took a crack at covering national politics. And I believe that fundamental experience of being a police reporter is one of the best things that can train you to be a good reporter in any direction. That's just my own personal opinion. But you write about 911 in the system, and most, I think, in my audience would say that's an unheralded success. 911, that, that made so much sense and improved our ability to feel safe and have emergencies dealt with rapidly and singularly. But there were some unintended consequences. Tell my audience what those were. There were many unintended consequences. The concept of it was to speed up uh, and improve the documentation of calls coming in from citizens, what calls were coming in, the era of computers is coming online, that we were able to track all this data, analyze it, make use of it. I spent my early career as a sergeant designing those types of systems for the Boston Police Department. But the unintended consequence and the uh, consequences, one, the volume of calls that were coming in as America was disintegrating in the 70s, the budget crises, the 3Ds I just talked about, deep leasing, deinstitutionalization, decriminalization, the creation of the homeless problem that we now experience 50 years later. You look before 1970, you didn't see the term homeless in the way we understand it today. But 911 created this phenomenal workload for police that overwhelmed us. It, uh, we just did not have enough resources as we're depolicing, reducing size police, because the rest of government was not responding to these calls for service. And so what did you do? If you had a dime or if you had a phone at all, you called us. And over time, we basically, uh, Los Angeles in 1980 was not responding to 1 million 911 calls a year. Just didn't have the cops, the resources. The other unintended effect of it was it distanced the police from the community. When I began my career in 1970, I started as a walking cop. Within about six months to a year, as 911 was starting to come into being in the Boston police, we all got put into police cars. Why? So we could respond more rapidly to these calls over all over the district. And the idea was we were measured by how quickly we responded and how quickly we got back into the car and got back to take the next call. So we lost touch with our communities, with the business people, with the pe people that we used to see when we walked the beat. And when air conditioning came along, thank God, in 1978, 
we would have rolled up the windows. And then we didn't have to basically talk to anybody. So we lost, uh, we lost touch with the public. And the public was increasingly dissatisfied with the service because they would call, take us forever to get there. And when we came, the push for management was get in and get out. So it's still it's still the problem with 911, uh, uh, or 9-11 as we call it, 911. And I read in the book that there was even terminology that was, in your words, ass backwards. If you were dealing with a call, you were out of service. If you were not dealing with a call, you were in service. Right. So the idea right? when you're there meeting with the public face to face after you walked up those streets like element and you were there, you had a sergeant calling you to get back in service. You were delivering a service. But again, we, we, we had it uh, in the early days as backwards. But that language creates incentives, which creates different behavior, which takes you out of the community. That's correct. And then we accelerated that process when also the social conditions in the streets started to disintegrate. Something else had happened in the 70s, coming out of the current report, the President's Commission on Crime, that police were basically said, are told, you cannot do anything about crime. Crime is caused by racism, poverty, the economy. I came to understand very early on in my career as a young sergeant, no, crime is caused by people. The other things may influence it, but it's caused by people, bad people in some instances, and there are a lot of them, good people who, in a moment of emotion, create a crime or create a disturbance. And so effectively, what we were doing in the 80s was we were no longer paying attention to the quality of life because we have uh, complaints, the prostitute, the con of the gang, drinking, the graffiti, the abandoned cars. We we're focusing our attention on serious crime. The society was going to take care of all those so-called causes of crime. And boy, they did a hell of a job, didn't they, in the 80s, when by 1990, we had the worst crime year in the history of America, coupled with cities that looked, looked like third world countries because the quality of life had deteriorated so much. And that goes to the social science theory of broken windows, which asserts, and I know you know it infinitely better than I do, that these smaller issues, whether it's prostitution, whether it's an abandoned car, whether it's an actual broken window or graffiti, are not victimless. They impose a sense, if not menace, of unease among the community, and they also create a subtextual atmosphere of lawlessness that feeds on itself and gets worse. Is that a general fair description? I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, actually, uh, you're echoing the words of George Kelling and James Wilson, both great friends, now both deceased. Uh, when I first read Broken Windows, Atlantic Monthly column in 1982. I had been living it in Boston. I had been practicing it. I'm probably one of the chief practitioners and most well-known for practicing Broken Windows because it works. Because what people see every day in their lives in their neighborhood impacts them in many respects more than what they might read about in the paper and never experience in their lives, the murder, the rape. But they see the neighborhood deteriorating around them. And what do they do? They call 311. They call 911. And in New York City, in some of the poorest neighborhoods, where do most of our calls come from? Those poorest neighborhoods in the highest crime neighborhoods. And what are they calling about? The out of control barbecue, the gang in the corner, the dope dealer. And for years in the 70s and 80s, we neglected it. And as a result, the broken windows, the quality of life was killing us, literally killing our cities. And unfortunately, there were those in the last several years around this whole issue of race that have tried to inject race into it, that the police, uh, uh, effectively uh, uh, injecting themselves into minority neighborhoods, black neighborhoods. And, Im and imposing bougie white standards exactly. on uh, mixed race neighborhoods. But who's calling us? You don't have uh, bougie whites uh, living in those neighborhoods. It is the people in those neighborhoods. And we have the documentation to show it. And you're actually now starting to see 
once again, some of the politicians starting to, uh-oh, we might have been barking up the wrong tree on this issue. Uh, broken windows works. It's an essential component of community policing that everybody wants to embrace. And Bill, how direct is a line drawn between broken windows and stop and frisk? They are two totally separate issues. Broken windows is the public calling us, 911 calls, et cetera, community meetings. Stop, question, and frisk is a separate uh, issue in that the officer, usually on his own, sees something that creates a reasonable suspicion that a crime has, is, or is about to be committed. And he has to be able to document that under the law in terms of what are those suspicions entail. So he is authorized to make the stop. He is authorized to question. And if he feels that person, there's some sign that that person might be armed and a threat to him or other in the area, he has the ability to pat down or frisk. We have shortened it to be stop and frisk, but the most important element of it is the question, what are you doing here? So there are two separate issues that have been co-joined in an effort to effectively make the argument because stop, question, and frisk has been applied most significantly in minority neighborhoods where the crime is and where most of those suspicious activities may occur with also quality of life enforcement. Two separate issues, but two essential elements of effective policing. The challenge is to do it like a, a doctor dealing with chemo and radiation, that they apply the right amount to the patient that's not going to kill the patient, but hopefully over time make the patient better. You have said that it was misused during the Bloomberg era, that the city was getting progressively, meaning importantly, safer, and yet stop, question, and frisk was increasing in number. Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, Commissioner Kelly did a phenomenal job after the uh, 9-11 attack, keeping the city safe against terrorism. And for all of their time in office, with maybe exception one year, they kept the crime rate going down. But something that I disagreed with them about, Mayor uh, Kelly, my predecessor, was the amount of emphasis on stop, question, and frisk. I believe that Commissioner Kelly really felt, uh, based on some of the uh, uh, reports I saw, that it was an essential element of keeping the crime rate going down. But it's like we're two different doctors looking at the same patient. I'm looking at the patient saying, he's a lot better. With crime down 60 and 70%, the quality of life in the city certainly having improved. New York became Disneyland. That why do you need to have so many stops where so few of the stops, 10%, are coming up with any evidence of a crime. And even Ray and Bloomberg, starting in 2010, when it hit 700,000 reported incidents, and probably many more that were not reported, began to cut it back. So when I came in in 2014 under de Blasio, who campaigned for mayor and won on that one issue, won it on that one issue, there was still about 150,000 a year. Three years later, when I left this commission in 2016, crime had continued to go down to record lows but stops were down around 10 or 12,000 a year. So I think my diagnosis uh, was uh, the better diagnosis. More with Bill Bratton, our special guest on The Takeout. We stay tuned for segment four in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Bill Bratton is our special guest. The book is called The Profession. 
the subtitle, A Memoir of Community Race and the Arc of Policing in America. Bill, who is Sir Robert Peel? Sir Robert Peel uh, in 1829 uh, was appointed to head up the newly created Metropolitan Police in London, one of the first organized uniform police forces uh, in the world, basically, at that time, uh, with their distinctive uh, hats and blue uniforms. Uh, Bobbies are named after him, right? Uh, basically, uh, Bobby Peel. Peelers, that uh, cops, copper buttons they had in the uniform. So, no, he was the creator of uh, what to me was the beginning of the professionalization of policing. And he has a phrase the police are the public and the public are the police. What do you think that means? And do you think it's relevant now? He has uh, nine principles uh, of the philosophy. First one is the basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent crime and disorder prevent crime and disorder. In the 70s and 80s, we focused only on crime and not disorder, and look where it got us in the 90s. Similarly now in 2020, they want us to focus on crime and not disorder, and you'll see where it gets us very quickly. But the phrase you just used was one of the nine. And it is the idea that we don't import our police officers from some other country, uh, from space. They're from the neighborhoods. And it's part of the reform movement over the last 50 years we, the police, I believe, have done a better job of trying to integrate our police forces than society has done in most other professions. When I joined the Boston Police Department, 2,800 officers, there are only 55 minority officers, no women, no gays, certainly. First gay officer, uh, Billy O'Connell, didn't come out to 1988. First woman, among one of the first women in the department, didn't come out to about 1975 or 76. So American policing over time, many major cities, including Los Angeles and New York, which have great intimacy with, now have majority minority police forces. And that's what he meant about the idea that the police come from the community, are of the community. And while they might not live in the community, and I'm not particularly supportive of the cops living in the community, the, the tensions today would be too tough on them and their families. But the idea is that when they're working in those communities, they are of the community. And the more they look like the communities they're policing, the better. Uh, with your indulgence, Bill, I'm gonna read uh, principles four, five, and six. And folks, if you pick up this book, you'll find this on page 95 and 94, 94, 95. These principles could be stapled on the billboard in any police department in this country. But here's principle four. The degree of cooperation of the public that can be secured diminishes proportionally to the necessity of the use of physical force. Principle five, police seek and preserve public favor, not by catering to the public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolute impartial service to the law. Principle six, police use physical force to the extent necessary to secure observance of the law or to restore order only when the exercise of persuasion, advice, and warning is found to be insufficient. Your thoughts? Isn't it interesting that those nine principles, how applicable they are, I was fortunate to be exposed to them in 1975 and have sought to implement them in every department I have led. And in the profession, I'm proud to be part of in my former leadership of major city chiefs. And so if you look at London today, they still are England today. The majority of the police officers are still unarmed because they expect the cooperation of the citizenry. And their unions have consistently voted down arming those officers with firearms with the exception of terrorism. Many of them do have to be armed, but it is the idea that they have the consent of the governed and that it is expected that people when being arrested by the police will not resist. What do we have in America today? Everybody seems to want to resist for the cameras so that 
so much of what we see on television now is police being resisted and then the person being arrested playing to the audience with their cameras. And it's a, uh, one of the central tenets that you just read takes into the idea, uh, takes into account the idea that in a democracy, you have no right to resist arrest. And as a police officer, you have no right to make an arrest inappropriately. If you can use a summons, if you can use an admonition, use that with arrest being the last resort and use of force the last, last resort in the course of making that arrest. So a couple of quick things I want to run by you, Bill. Uh, right now, Congress is trying to write a police reform law at the federal level. What should be in it from your perspective and what should not be in it? Well, it'll be interesting to see what they finally come out with. But good news is, unlike so much of what happened here in New York State and many other states around the country, where the legislature didn't involve the judiciary, the district attorneys and the police, Congress, and based on my conversations with the leadership of the major police organizations, is involving police chiefs to help them understand what a police feel, what a police management feel, and involving the unions in these discussions. So I'm hopeful that out of this comes actually reform that can, in fact, be implemented and be funded. And the reform I'm looking for is basically focused on the idea of regaining trust. But to regain that trust between the public, and that's what Sir Robert Peel talks about, we need to basically have accountability. We need to have transparency. We need to have phenomenal better training than we have now. You can't expect a kid six months in the academy to come out and deal with the 21st century issues that they have to face. But that's what we expect. I was on the streets of Boston after six to eight weeks in 1970. Thank God I had some experiences of people that got me through it. But uh, I'm hoping that money is going to be focused on training, 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 and accountability, accountability. If not, 50 years from now, our successes are going to be talking about the same issues. Uh, Bill, I want to not get your... 50 uh, years from now, five years from now. Right, right. I want to get your feelings on something that I think affects you personally. There's been a decision in New York to not have New York police officers near Pride Day or Pride-related events. Obviously, the history of Stonewall is painful for that community. It's a painful chapter in New York policing. But you mentioned officers coming out. You've been at these marches. Does this hurt you personally? It does. I actually am the recipient of the Stonewall Award from the group that basically was involved in the original Stonewall event. Uh, I was the department in Boston back in 1976, the first liaison, I think one of the first liaisons in the country, to the gay community. So I've been dealing with their issues as those issues began to expand in terms of gays and then transsexuals and all the many new issues that we have, transgender, that as that world has exploded and police have attempted to work with them. So this idea of they're turning their backs on the police is crazy, absolutely crazy. And it's a slap in the face to those cops who have come out, who are openly gay and have found that by being openly gay in their numbers, that they don't have to hide in the closet any longer. I was a sector car partner with the first openly gay officer, Billy O'Connell, who came out in 1988 in Boston. My, uh, uh, my family, I have gay members in my family who were some of the first to be married under the Massachusetts legislation. So what's going on in the gay community at the moment, particularly in New York, but unfortunately it's spreading, is that they're battling among themselves for supremacy over different ideas, if I understand correctly, based on some of the reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere, in terms of the battle for the soul of the gay world. But to uh, turn your back on the police, who are you going to go to to solve all these crimes of discrimination that they're concerned with? 
they're not going to solve them on their own. They're going to work with the police. And uh, believe me, we work very hard to deal with these issues. Not to say that there's some cops, unfortunately, that uh, uh, basically have uh, bias issues, have uh, the, the issues we have around race. That's the reality. But thankfully, there are fewer and fewer over the course of the years. That is the voice of Bill Bratton. He's our special guest. The book, The Profession. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. But for those on CBSN and our podcast platforms, please stay tuned to the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Bill Bratton is our special guest. He has been police commissioner in Boston, Los Angeles, and New York, not once but twice. So, Bill, I want to ask you this. Is a police commissioner a police officer or a political figure or both? Uh, we have 18,000 police departments in America. I've headed up six of them, consulted a hundred of them. As police commissioner in New York, by law, and in Boston, you have to be a civilian. The majority of commissioners, however, have formerly been police officers, as in my case, which I think is absolutely critical. Starting at the bottom, like a doctor who has to start in medical school, you start as a cop and work your way up. There's almost no chief in America who has not started as a cop at the bottom. And I think that's critically important because we don't have a like the military, a school like West Point to train leaders. They are trained as they come up through the ranks. So as commissioner, as a civilian in Los Angeles, I was a police chief. I was the highest uniformed officer reporting to a board of civilian commissioners, five commissioners, and I had a dotted line relationship to the mayor. So I had a lot of an inspector general that I had to report to and a federal monitor. Uh, I had a lot of bosses in uh, Los Angeles, but then you have sheriffs, most of whom are elected. And uh, so their uh, leadership is uh, very different than those who work for a mayor or a governor or a town manager. America, and it's one of our strengths, but it's also one of our dramatic weaknesses, trying to get national policy for 18,000 police departments. Talk about herding cats. Uh, The the ability to try and corral that that, that group is extraordinarily difficult. So I've come across statistics, Bill, that gun purchases have been up in the last two years. There are more than 400 million firearms in this country. Isn't that frightening? Isn't that well, I want to ask you what you think about that number, the trend lines, and to what degree does that moderately or manifestly complicate the lives of the beat cop? It's going to be even more complicated if the Supreme Court is expected comes down with the uh, ruling in October that anybody can carry a gun anywhere in the United States, that basically laws governing their use, like the strong laws we used to have in New York before the district attorneys started messing around with them, that... Can you imagine an officer always worried that everybody he approaches may have a firearm on them or people as they engage in interaction that, uh, you know, they, they have access to a gun. When it's, it also impacts our racial issue in the United States, because unfortunately, so much of the violent crime committed with firearms is committed in our inner cities among our minority populations, as reflected in figures that are hard to refute, murder victims, uh, murder perpetrators, shooting victims, shooting perpetrators, significantly out of proportion in the numbers of the overall population, which has resulted in what has been described in the current uh, terminology as the mass incarceration of minorities. Some of that is reflective of the un, uh, high levels of violence in those communities. But it's also the idea that uh, it's one of the reasons why we have more 
people in prison in any other society in the world. None of the other Western democracies have access to the firearms. The Brits did away with all of theirs years ago. New Zealand did away with all of theirs. And why do they have so few crimes compared to us and so few people in prison? Part of it is the fact they have so few people up there with guns shooting and killing people. From a police perspective, what do you think of the phrase, the solution to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun? Uh, I don't support that at all. Ironically, uh, aren't we expecting our police who are armed with guns to talk people with guns down? The idea that police are increasingly being encouraged to de-escalate. I had I talked about this in the book. I had first-hand experience. Uh, just finished hostage negotiation training. It was a bio over the weekend of Harvey Schlossberg, who created New York, came to Boston to train us. Two weeks after I was trained on it, I found myself facing a bank robber holding a hostage with a gun to her head and me holding a gun pointed at him. And effectively, uh, I was a good guy with a gun. He was a bad guy with a gun. Uh, couldn't shoot him. Uh, he could shoot me. So I tried to de-escalate by lowering my gun. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people who don't have the training aren't going to lower their guns. So this is the fun and game segment of the program. I know that uh, first four and a half minutes was a little on the heavy side. So let's get to the fun and games part. Bill, we ask everyone, and I think you know this because your wife was Ricky Clayman. She no, was on the show recently. She didn't me into fun and games. She said, this oh, okay, is, okay. So we have three, we have three questions. We have three questions. We ask all of our guests. So uh, take these in whatever order you want. Uh, most influential book in your life, your favorite movie. And if you're going to listen to some music and really, really get into it, what kind of music by artist or genre is that most likely to be? I, uh, I don't have a favorite book. I have several. Uh, one that influenced my uh, desire to become police commissioner in New York was the uh, book The Commissioner by Richard Daughtry, written in the 50s, became the movie Madigan, which was also one of my all-time favorite movies, and I think one of the best movies ever done about policing. I lived that book when I became police commissioner in New York. Uh, there's another one, uh, Common Ground by Peter Lucas, The Experiences of Boston, during the race issues of desegregation of housing and school in the 70s. Uh, he captured that city and the need to find common ground that we can all, that's the need we have now in 2020. Going into Los Angeles, the, the book was Official Negligence by Lou Cannon, the history of the LAPD at war with its black community. That was my tutorial. The third one in New York was Fred Siegel, the future once happened here, talking about the failed Lindsay administration in the 70s we're reliving that once again. The future is happening right now. Uh, favorite, uh, uh, was it movie? Was that the second one? First, the favorite one would have to be, and I, I'm a movie buff. I love the movies. I've got a collection of about 800 DVDs. Uh, so I can be all over the place with you on that. But uh, that Madigan is one because, again, it's just one little book I loved, the career I had. But uh, I could go on and on with favorite movies. Uh, I'm just glad you still have DVD format. So do I. I'm, I'm, hey, I, we're, I, I, we're analog people, Bill. You and I, we're analog people, okay? I, I, I have a cellar full of VHS ones, if you can believe it. Also, <laughs> that, uh, that have now been duplicated with DVD, which I can now get through Amazon. Right, uh, exactly. So terms, Fa favorite music? In terms of music, as I talk about in the book, I lost a lot of my hearing in Vietnam during the uh, Tet Offensive. Uh, uh, fortunately, they measured my hearing going in and they measured my hearing going out and found it had deteriorated. Thankfully, it was enough to still get me on the police. But as a result, uh, I have an incredible hard time hearing lyrics. I can hear music, but I miss lyrics unless I'm sitting like you wearing headphones and I have to wear headphones to actually watch TV along with closed captioning. So I miss the joy of what so many of you experience. 
Um, I'm a big fan of uh, 50s, 60s. I'm all over the place in music. I'm not a big fan of jazz. Uh, opera, I've come to appreciate certain aspects of it. Although the area for the area for Mob, I'm so disappointed when I was at the Met and they had the English translation. And I thought this was this great love song of all time. And they're fighting over the bill. That uh, <laughs> some, sometimes it's good not to understand the lyrics. Precisely. But again, yeah, it's, yeah um, that, that sounds much better than it translates. It doesn't. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful. But uh, actually, the first gift up for Christmas from Rudy Giuliani was basically the CD collection for that opera. He loved opera. Yes, an opera buff to be sure. Now many, many other things, not very many of them laudable. Uh, Bill Bratton has been our special guest. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. Thanks very much again. The book, The Profession, a memoir of community race and the arc of policing in America. This has been The Takeout, folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.